Welcome. It's an honor to be a part of this special series on Globalism Rising, Authoritarianism, and the Demise of Civil Liberties. I put together a book years ago called Socialism, the Real History from Plato to the Present. And the subtitle is How the Deep State Capitalizes on Crises to Consolidate Control. So people aren't in a hurry to give up their freedoms. But if they're in a crisis, they'll knee-jerk reaction, panic, and trade freedom for security. This natural response has been studied and put into effect intentionally to create or capitalize on crises for the purpose of getting people to surrender their freedoms on a local level and on a global level. Now, how to take power from the people. Uh, democracies and republics are efforts to take the power of the king and give it to the people. The most common form of government in world history is kings. They go by different names. Pharaohs, Caesars, Kaisers, Sultan, Tsars, Maharaja, Genghis Khan, Chairman, Mao's. The name changes, but it's the same. Power wants to concentrate into the hands of one person. Uh, democracies is where the people are in charge, but a pure democracy, every citizen has to be at every meeting every day to talk about every issue. Very time consuming and logistically, it could not grow larger than a city. Uh, republics are where the people are in charge, but they get to take care of their family and farm and have a representative in their place go to the city every day to talk politics. So republics, democracies we, is taking power of the king, giving it to the people. But what if the king wants the power back? Does he just go to the people and say, hi, I want to be the king. Give me control of your life. They're not in a hurry. So there's two methods to take power from the people. One is fear. When people get in fear, they will trade freedom for security. And the second is free stuff. The king's so nice, he's giving you free stuff. And then once you get dependent, he begins to set the hook like a fisherman. Uh, it's like a dict uh, drug dealer takes over a neighborhood two ways. He can come in with guns and get people in fear, and they'll trade their freedom and pay the mob anything they want just to be left alive. But the other is the drug dealer so nice, he's giving away free drugs until people get hooked. And then he says, you want more free drugs? you're gonna to have to sell yourself into prostitution and rob from your neighbor. And so a, a hunter catches animals through gun and bait, right? One is the coming in the front door and the other is the back door. Uh, I was studying how to catch wild pigs. Uh, you put a post in the ground and throw some corn down. And then the next day there's two posts and three posts. And the next day you keep throwing corn down, the pigs ignore the post and just eat the corn. And you put fencing in between until finally you got a semicircle and then just a little opening. And the pigs will squeeze through, eat the corn, and then you shut the gate and you caught yourself some wild pigs. It's dependency. It's the free stuff. Now, some scriptures, uh, Proverbs 29, 25, fear of man bringeth a snare. Snare is a trap. And free stuff, what's that? It says in James 1, but every man when he's tempted is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. So you have those two methods. So the deep state, uh, the, those that want a globalist government, uh, create or capitalize on chaos and discord. And in the atmosphere of fear, they come along promising a solution of free stuff and get people into dependency and control. Uh, some scriptures, uh, Proverbs 133 says how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. But Proverbs 6 says, six things the Lord hates, and the last is he that soweth discord. So we have unity, we have discord. When people get in discord, they get in fear. And that's when you usurp power. Imagine being in heaven and someone sows discord, right? Lucifer, and he's cast out. And then we have uh, Lucifer sowing discord in the garden with Adam blaming Eve and Cain killing Abel. And then we fast forward to the Hebrew Republic. This is that first 400-year period when Israel is out of Egypt. Gideon just defeats 100,000 Midianites. There's no threat to Israel from the outside. But Gideon has an illegitimate son named Abimelech, and he wants power. 
And so he goes to the town of Shechem, and he's the first one to, we have record of to do critical race theory, identity race politics to sow discord. Uh, it says that he goes to the men of Shechem and says, is it better for you that all the sons of Gideon reign over you? Remember also that I am your flesh, your bone and your flesh. So he's identifying with them on a fleshly level. And then um, it says the men spake of him in the ears of all the men of Shechem and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech for they said he is our brother. So doesn't matter if he can rule good or not. He's one of us. So it's an identity politics. And then they go to the city treasury and Abimelech takes money from the treasury to hire rioters. Antifa type people. And it says, and they gave him three score and 10 pieces of silver out of the house of Balbarith, wherewith Abimelech hired vain and worthless persons which followed him to commit violence. And they went into his father's house at Ophrah and slew his brethren. And out of this chaos, uh, the men of Shechem made Abimelech king. So this is the first recorded instance of a nation that's completely at peace, but somebody comes in and sows discord, uses money, hires rioters, does violence, and in the confusion, seizes power, makes himself king. Now, the Hebrew Republic would have ended here rather than a century later with King Saul had not someone throw through a millstone over the wall and it killed Abimelech. Let's fast forward. Italy, 500 years ago. So a bunch of city-states, Venice, Genoa, Naples, Florence, Siena. They all have armies and fight. And Machiavelli thinks if one prince could control all of Italy, it would stop the infighting. So he writes a book called The Prince, where he advocates the ends justifies the means. The end of one prince controlling all of Italy is such a good end because it'll stop the infighting that any means necessary to get there is justified. Lie, cheat, steal. So if a prince conquers a city, the people would hate him. But if the prince pays rioters like Abimelech did to commit violence and set things on fire and kill cows, burn barns, the people of the city state are going to panic and want someone to come along and restore order. And uh, so the idea is that uh, the prince um, pays these criminals, they commit the violence, the people want someone to, to come along and fix it, and the prince comes in and gets rid of the very criminals he bribed to create the mess. Nobody will know the better for it, and everyone will praise the prince as a hero. So it's called Machiavellianism, where you create or capitalize on crises to consolidate control. Uh, this is the intentional creating of this crisis for political purpose. It's uh, referred to in politics as fear mongering. And it's actually a good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go around the back of the house and set it on fire. And then you go around the front of the house and sell them a fire extinguisher. And they'll pay anything for it and even thank you for being there. So this Machiavellianism, you've more recently been made aware of this by a famous quote from Rahm Emanuel. Obama's chief of staff, where he said, you don't ever want a crisis to go to waste. It's an opportunity to do important things that you would otherwise avoid. And Hillary Clinton, I'm actually excited about this opportunity, this crisis. Uh, the chief of staff for President Obama is an old friend of mine and my husband's, and he said, you know, never waste a good crisis. And that's what we're trying to do. Uh, Fox primetime Ben Dominich said the authoritarian left is using the permanent pandemic to achieve as many ends as they can imagine. This is Rahm Emanuel's famous dictum, never let a crisis go to waste. Normal times don't produce the outcomes that the authoritarian left wants because people are not scared enough to give them the limitless power they crave. Crises are necessary. And so if there aren't any on offer, they manufacture them. So you and I see a crisis, our response is how can we help people through it? They see a crisis, their response is how can we usurp power through it? Henry Louis Mencken wrote in uh, 1956, the urge to save humanity 
is almost always a false face for the urge to rule it. Ronald Reagan said, one of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism is medicine, it is a healthcare crisis. It's easy to disguise a medical program as a humanitarian project. This is a tactic called seizing the moral high ground or virtue signaling, where those that are wanting to seize power want to portray themselves as more caring than you. So casinos do this. If a casino wants to move into town, people don't want it. They cite statistics of crime going up. But if the casino can give some money to schools, they can seize the moral high ground and say, we care about the children. Are you giving money to the public schools? We care more about the children than you do. And unless you're out there campaigning for more casinos, you must hate the children. And so that's the strategy, Ronald Reagan said, with the healthcare crisis. Unless you surrender your body to the state, you must hate the children. You must hate the grant your grandma, right? And so forget the alternative protocols to treat different things. Uh, you just have to surrender to our agenda because we're more caring about people's health than you are. There's a Daily Caller editorial cartoon with two scientists looking through a microscope and they say, it appears to be mutating into a totalitarian dictatorship. Reagan goes on, if you don't stop this, Behind it will come other federal programs that will invade every area of freedom until one day we will awake and find we have socialism. Now, when he says, if you don't stop this, what he's saying is the response to usurpation is pushback. Every individual must say enough, no more. And the, the, the federal politicians in many cases have uh, let down the people and the umbrella has been ripped and now it's raining down on every person. And it's up to every female athlete to push back. It's up to every school mom to push back. It's ever up to every pastor. To it's up to every single person on a local level to push back against the usurpation of power on a uh, American level, but also on a global level. Now, we're talking globalism. We're talking uh, globalism rising and the authoritarianism and the demise of civil liberties. Uh, let's look at a previous example in history, the British Empire. The British Empire became the largest empire on planet Earth, 13 million square miles, a half a billion people. How do you think they got there? Do you think they just walked into a country and said, hi, we want to be the biggest empire on the planet. Uh, give us control of your country. I don't think the people just said, okay, here. Well, let's look at how the British took over India. Uh, they landed in Bengal in 1714 and opened a trading post that turned into a trading fort that turned into them having guns and getting involved in local politics and observing the different categories, the different groups and the different kingdoms. And they would give guns to one kingdom, guns to another kingdom, and then stir up ancient animosities. So discord between the kingdoms. And when they broke out into fighting and bloodshed, then the British would come in to restore order and they would take control of both. And they did this again and again and again till they took over all of India, a quarter of the world's population. They tried doing this during the American Revolutionary War. And so British General Johnny Burgoyne lands in Canada, comes down, meets with the Mohawk Indians and promises them money for scalps. And they go out in front of the British Army and scalp Americans. It was so bad, it was listed as one of the reasons in the Declaration of Independence of why we were rebelling against the king. So the Declaration says the king has excited domestic insurrections among us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. 
So the Indians knew on and off. When they're at peace, they're at peace, but when they're in war, it's unlimited. And they did this again during the War of 1812. The British controlled Pensacola, Florida. Just north was Fort Mims, Alabama, and the Red Stick Creek Indians. The French pronunciation of Red Stick is Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Red, Red Stick. Well, the British go to the Red Stick Indians and promise them money for scouts. They capture Fort Mims, Alabama. They capture 500 people, and then they proceed to scalp the, the people that they captured. The historical marker down there in Fort Mims, Alabama says here, Creek Indian War, 1813-14, took place the most brutal massacre in American history. Indians took the fort with heavy loss, then killed all but some 36 of the some 550 in the fort. Creeks had been armed by British at Pensacola in this phase of the War of 1812. Do we really think the British Empire cared about the Red Stick Creek Indians? No, they were stirring them up for the intentional purpose of conquering both. Washington warned of this in his farewell address. He said, disorders and miseries, discord causes the fear, right? Disorders and miseries gradually incline the minds of men to seek security in the absolute power of an individual who turns this disposition to the purposes of his own elevation on the ruins of public liberty. Jealousies, false alarms, kindles the animosity of one part against another. Foments occasional riot and insurrection. It opens the door to foreign influence and corruption, which find a facilitated access to the government itself through the channels of party passion. What's he talking about? Well, back then it was the, the British and the French going to one party and saying, we'll help you against the other. But now it's the Chinese and the Russians going to some candidates and some parties saying, hey, we'll help you with money and we'll help you with this. And they're like, oh, really? You're so nice. You want to help us? No, they have a plan to take over the whole thing. And Washington is warning of this, that this party passion is going to open the door to this foreign influence. Washington goes on, let there be no change by usurpation. What's usurpation? That's the government taking away your freedoms that they're not authorized to do, but you let them get away with it because they're telling you that they're doing it for your own good. He says encroachment tends to consolidate the powers of all departments in one and to create a real despotism. Usurpation, though in one instance, may be the instrument of good, it is the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. This is his farewell address. This is his goodbye warning. He says, watch out in times of disorders and miseries, discord, chaos, crises, that you have some leader comes along saying, I, I have an instrument of good. I want to do something good. But he ends up consolidating power. And Washington says, this is the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. Right? It's not during the wartime. It's, it's where you have leaders saying, hey, we're going to usurp and take away some of your freedom to solve this crisis. Washington goes on. Usurpation must always greatly overbalance in permanent evil any transient or temporary benefit which the youth, the youth can at any time yield. So let's look at Europe. We talked about uh, Lucifer sowing discord in heaven and then sowing discord with Adam blaming Eve and Cain killing Abel and sowing discord uh, in the Israel, Israel Republic that first 400 years, right, with Abimelech. We talked about Machiavelli sowing discord. And, uh, but now let's look at Germany after Napoleon and the Napoleonic Wars killed 6 million people. Uh, the King of Prussia wants to strengthen the state and he has a philosopher named Hegel 
who teaches at the University of Berlin. Hegel influenced Charles Darwin and Hegel influenced Karl Marx. Karl Marx was a member of the Young Hegelians at the university, a radical student group. And so how do you concentrate power? Well, Hegel's idea was called dialectics. It's a triangle. One corner is a thesis. The opposite corner is an antithesis or antithesis. And the top corner is a synthesis. It sounds complicated, but it's not. So Karl Marx says, okay, the, the thesis is the status quo. It's the starting point. Everybody's used to the way things have been and they sort of got accustomed to it. He says, you have to create the antithesis. You have to create a problem that's real bad. So bad that people panic in fear and they're willing to trade their freedom for security to some leader that proposes an answer that's just half as bad. And then that becomes the new starting point and they create another problem that's real bad and everyone panics in fear, gives up some more of their freedom to settle for an answer that's just half as bad. And then they create another problem that's real bad and people surrender more of their freedom to settle for an answer that's just half as bad. And every time they settle, they're giving up more of their individual freedom to the state, right? So power is concentrating into the hands of the state, crisis after crisis, and the promised solution after the promised solution. So Karl Marx, he says, how do you create an antithesis? How do you create a problem that's real bad? Well, you have to send in agitators, agent provocateurs, community organizers, labor organizers. Their job is to find people with grievances, stir them up to riot and sow discord, very similar to Abimelech sowing discord, very similar to uh, Machiavelli uh, and this prince paying criminals to uh, cause problems in these city-states, very similar to the British going into India or to the American Indians and stirring them up. And so this idea, Karl Marx, with the German mind that likes to organize things, says you send in these agitators, they create a domestic crisis, and then everyone panics in fear and is willing to surrender their freedoms for security. And so Karl Marx called this critical theory. It's where you categorize all the groups in a country, economically, religiously, ethnically, and you call some victims, others oppressors, haves and have nots, and you pit them against each other until it breaks out into bloodshed and panic and fear, discord, and everybody is knee-jerk reaction, wants to surrender their freedoms to somebody who promises to fix it, and that's when they let go. That's what Washington says, that that's the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. Originally, it was called critical economic theory, and they would organize the proletariat against the bourgeoisie. Right? They'd organize the working class against the business owners, the poor against the rich. And then it was critical racial theory with organizing blacks against whites or critical religious theory, right? Organizing Catholics against the Protestants or Muslims against the Christians. They even or took advantage of what was the Congo, right? Organized the Hutus against the Tutsis. So the Belgian and German colonizers went into the Congo and would measure different features about the different peoples. And they would say, you're a Hutu and you're a Tutsi. They created artificial distinctions that had not been there before. And then they stirred up animosities between them. And it broke out into fighting and warfare and bloodshed and even genociding each other. And then the colonizing power would come in to restore order very similar to what the British did in India or tried to do with the American Indians in America. And so could you imagine the government breaking people into groups and pitting them against each other and take advantage of the controversies between them? Uh, Castro said the revolution needs the enemy. 
the revolutionary needs his antithesis, which is the counter-revolutionary. And if enemies were lacking, they had to be fabricated, Richard Pipes wrote in Communism History. So you can't get people to give up their freedoms unless there's a crisis, right? You, you have to have the antithesis there, and you have to have an enemy to organize against that people feel enough afraid of that they're willing to give up their freedoms. And if there aren't any, you manufacture them. Like a, like a white supremacist or a nationalist or some group that doesn't really exist, but you want to create a phantom enemy so that you can get people into fear so they'll give up their freedoms. Jesus talked about this. Mark 3, 24, he says, if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So you have to get the kingdom to divide against itself. It's sort of like introducing an autoimmune disease into the body politic. What's an autoimmune disease? It's where your own body attacks your own body on the inside. Your immune system begins to attack your own organs. And so this is what's done to the body politic. You want to uh, call it, they call it critical race theory, where patriotism is the enemy. And so you want to get people to identify with subgroups and then pit the subgroups against each other to divide from the inside. Franklin Roosevelt said, whoever seeks to set nas one nationality against another seeks to degrade all nationalities. Whoever seeks to set one race against another seeks to enslave all races. The so-called racial voting blocks are the creation of designing politicians who profess to be able to deliver them on election day. FDR says again, remember the Nazi technique, pit race against race, religion against religion, prejudice against prejudice, divide and conquer. Charles Barkley, NBA player on CBS Sports Panel, April 3rd, 2021, said, man, I think most white people and black people are great people. I really believe that in my heart. But I think our system is set up where our politicians, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, are designed to make us not like each other. So they can keep their grasp of money and power. They divide and conquer. He goes on, we're so stupid believing our politicians. Their only job is, hey, let's make the whites and the blacks not like each other. Let's make rich people and poor people not like each other. Let's scramble the middle class. I truly believe that in my heart. Even Malcolm X in 1963 said the white liberal differs from the white conservative, both want power, but the white liberal has perfected the art of posing as the Negro's friend and benefactor to use the Negro as a pawn or a weapon in this political football game, and the white liberal controls the ball. Now, how did this begin to come to America? Right? Karl Marx writes the Communist Manifesto, 1848, but in 1894, you have Chicago and the Pullman Railroad Car Company, and they had an economic downturn and could not pay the workers what they did before. And so the workers had grievances. And somebody came in to organize these workers with grievances. His name was Eugene Debs, a certain candidate for president, uh, had his picture on his wall of his office, Eugene Debs. He organizes these workers with grievances to protest and to riot and to commit violence. And the rioters destroyed $80 million worth of railroad cars spreading to 27 states. 
And since everything in the country is shipped on railroad, the entire nation is paralyzed. Could you imagine somebody organizing rioting and burning, spreading from city to city, paralyzing the country? Well, Eugene Debs then started the Socialist Party of America, and he ran for president five times between 1900 and 1920, one time from prison. And then in 1920, branching off is the Communist Party USA, and they run candidates for president every year from 1920 to 1940. What happened in 1940? Democrat President Franklin Roosevelt makes a treaty with Stalin during World War II. And the Democrat the Communist Party USA says, why should we run our own candidate when here the Democrat candidate is making treaties with Stalin? So from that point on, they just simply began to back Democrat candidates and infiltrate that party. And it's documented. Even Ronald Reagan said, I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The party left me. Zell Miller, the last pro-life Democrat senator, I had the privilege of meeting him years ago. He said, unfortunately, the National Democratic Party has been taken over by the very liberal left-wing leaning special interest groups in Washington. So these are credible people making documented statements that their party was infiltrated and taken over. But lest we think they only want one party, there's Congressman Albert Herlong, 1963, reads into the congressional record the 45 goals and tactics the communists have laid out to take over America. And one of them was capture one or both of the political parties. And it's fairly easy to do with money because uh, it takes lots of money to run for office. And once uh, the money is given, there is a feeling of obligation to vote the way the, well, those that contribute to you. And, uh, and then he goes on Resist any attempt to outlaw the Communist Party. Another tactic was do away with loyalty oaths or pledges of allegiance. So we talked about uh, Lucifer sowing discord in heaven, Satan's, and then he gets named Satan, and he goes into the garden, sows discord, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, sows discord with um, Abimelech there in the Hebrew Republic. Machiavelli talked about sowing discord to seize power. We talked about the British sowing discord in India and, and, and in America. We talked about the Congo, the sowing of discord. And, and now we're moving up a little closer to the present. We had Eugene Debs taking advantage of the discord to organize. And let's go over to Germany. In the 1920s, Germany was a republic. The people were in charge, ruling through representatives. Someone starts a party called the National Socialist Workers Party. And the head of it was Hitler. And this party had a violent under the table arm to it. Um, they were like um, an Antifa, you know, sometimes uh, committing violence group, and they were called brown shirts. They were nicknamed Sturmabteilung, which means stormtroopers, because they would storm into the meetings of Hitler's opponents and disrupt the meeting and shout down the speakers. And then the brown shirts would lock arms and block access to public buildings. Could you imagine people locking arms and blocking things in public? And then they blocked off streets. And then they went into the cities and they smashed windows and looted and set on fire over 7,500 stores owned by Jews in the night of broken glass. Could you imagine people doing this type of thing? And oh, did I mention uh, they had an attack on their capital and the burning of the Reichstag. And evidence points to Hitler's own people setting the fire. But in the confusion, in this, uh, the insurrection of the capital being attacked, Hitler blames his political opponents and has them 
arrested and detained and then shot without a trial. And when the dust settled, Hitler didn't have any political opponents left. The crises that was created by his people allowed him to usurp power. So we see this strategy also used in the Soviet Union. 1934, Stalin is facing a growing anti-Stalinist movement. And at the same time, Stalin has a friend, Sergei Kirov, the party boss of Leningrad, who's giving speeches praising Stalin, and he's becoming very popular. They even built a statue to Sergei Kirov. Well, Stalin had an idea. He would assassinate his friend, Sergei Kirov. Nobody would suspect that he did it, but it would eliminate a potential rival, and he would blame the assassination on the anti-Stalinists. And everybody would believe that they did it because they didn't like Stalin and they didn't like Sergei. Stalin used this crisis as an excuse to arrest, to detain, to investigate, and to kill over a million people in the first great purge of 1936 to 38. Matter of fact, Erdogan did the same thing in Turkey. He had political opponents. He goes up in an airplane, flies in a circle, and he lands, and he claims there was a coup against him, and he just happens to have a list of 30,000 of his political opponents that he pulls out, they get arrested, they get zip-tied, they get taken away, and they've not been seen since. So this strategy is pretty well documented. And so then when we had an insurrection in Washington, D.C., uh, even Tucker Carlson showed this footage of the very first people coming into the U.S. Capitol. I want you to pay attention to the first group of assailants as they break into the building. The second man through the window is wearing full tactical body armor and is carrying a baseball bat. And we... Other... Now, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> now, if we look at this, the group of men dressed in black, there were no group of men like that at the Trump rally. And they sort of don't look like they were your common Trump supporters that got stirred up by a speech and decided that they were going to break into the Capitol. And they just happened to have tactical gear uh, on their backs. This looked like it was very similar to what happened with Erdogan, with, with Stalin, and with Hitler, and these other different instances. And uh, we begin to see that there were FBI operatives in the crowd. And then we noticed that the U.S. Capitol building has 2,300 police officers. It's the most protected building on planet Earth. And it has big metal bulletproof doors that can only be opened by the inside because of these very powerful magnets at the top. Somebody had to buzz them in. And then we have video footage of a guy named Ray Epps who was in the crowd the night before saying, we got to break into the Capitol. We got to break into the Capitol. And the people around him are saying, fed, fed, fed. They knew that this was a uh, federal agent operative in their crowds trying to stir them up. And there's other articles that lean to this being an entrapment, something that was planned from the inside. And um, there was uh, a New York Times journalist, and he, on a hidden video, reportedly captured. Uh, it says that 
what happened on January 6th was overblown, fake drama, fake news, full of FBI informants. Now, in psychology, there's something called psychological projection, uh, where the attacker blames the victim. Little kids do this. I didn't start the fight, you did. It's called blame shifting, where Karl Marx says, accuse others of what you do. And this has been found uh, in described as blame shifting or George Orwell's double speak. But David Axelrod was the campaign manager for a previous president. And he said on NPR radio, April 19th, 2010, he said in Chicago, there was a old tradition of throwing a brick through your own campaign office window and then calling a press conference to say you've been attacked. So you do the crime and you blame it on your innocent opponent and they get maligned and the story gets legs, and they got to back up and go on the defensive. And most people only read the headlines, and they consider guilt by association. And this is an effective strategy. Uh, matter of fact, if there's a candidate that's uh, running for president and maybe colluding with Russia, giving away a fifth of the US uranium to Russia in exchange for $145 million contribution to her foundation, she wants to pay for a steel dossier to accuse her opponent of colluding with Russia. And his name gets smeared with it in the media. And if it ever gets pointed back at her, by that time, the water's muddied. The public doesn't know who to trust, and she gets a pass. Let's say there's another candidate that's extorting Ukraine, saying, stop investigating my son, or I'm going to hold back billions of U.S. aid. You want to accuse your opponent of extorting Ukraine. You accuse them of the exact crime that you're guilty of. Their name gets smeared with it. If it ever gets pointed back at you, by that time, the water's muddied and the public doesn't know who to trust and you get a pass. And the investigation process is nothing more than an opportunity to subpoena all the evidence that can convict the guilty person and destroy it. Laptops, hard drives, text messages, servers, emails. Well, let's look at this strategy after World War II. So, we talked about the sowing of discord in heaven, Lucifer, the sowing of discord in the garden with the Bimelech, with Machiavelli, with the British Empire, with the brown shirts uh, and with Stalin. But now let's look at after World War II, Germany, France, England give up their colonies. And so there are new nations coming into, into being with brand new leaders. And it looks hopeful, except the Soviet Union decides to do critical theory. They send in their agents into the countries to identify all the groups and categorize them. Ethnically, Bosnians, Croats, Serbs. Religiously, Sunni, Shia, Orthodox. Racially, economically, it doesn't matter. They would call some victims and others oppressors, some haves and some have-nots, and then they would stir them up against each other till they would protest and have riots and bloodshed it and violence. Why bloodshed? Because once people get in fear, they no longer think logically, they think emotionally, and they can be more easily manipulated. The term is fear-mongering or race-baiting. And then they would co-opt the media with bribes and threats to blame the new leader of the new country for all of the problems. And when the country gets panicky enough in fear, they would do a coup or a rigged election and replace the leader with a Soviet puppet. And country after country fell, 
and Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Yugoslavia, Hungary, and all these countries that are falling are called behind the Iron Curtain. And Mao Zedong tweaks it in China. And instead of doing the uh, Hegelian dialectics with a thesis, antithesis, synthesis to do a couple crises and seize power, Mao Zedong said, you call it a continuous revolution theory. You continually have crisis even after you seized power. So that they'd have a crisis and take the land from the rich people. And another crisis, take the land from the middle class people. Another crisis, take the land from the poor people until finally the government had all the land. And this continuous revolution theory has been integrated. And so it's almost like a continuous pandemic that you want to continue to keep the fear going so that you can get the people to give up some more and some more of their freedoms. Now, Truman, when all these countries are falling to the Soviets, he does nothing. He thinks the United Nations that he helped form will bring world peace. But the next president is Eisenhower. And he gives a speech in 1963. He says, the United Nations has seemed to be two distinct things to the two worlds divided by the Iron Curtain. To the free world, it seems it should be a constructive forum. To the communist world, it has been a sounding board for their propaganda, a weapon to be exploited in spreading disunity and confusion. Discord. We're back to that. So Eisenhower's choices. He can do nothing and let these countries continue to fall, or he can do something. And that's what he decides to do. So um, the U.S. Secretary of State Dean Acheson and CIA Director Alan Dulles had begun to get involved in this type of activity. In 1952, they allowed participation in a covert plan uh, to join with some of those in Egypt's military for Project FF to remove Egypt's King Farouk and replace him with Gamal Nasser. Well, now we have Eisenhower and a more serious incident with Iran. Iran in 1953 had a leader named Mazadek. And he began to side with the Soviet Union, and he nationalizes the oil industry in Iran. And you say, big deal. Well, wait a second. Britain has no oil fields. So in 1908, Britain formed the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. You know it better as BP. Right? So in 1954 is when they changed the name from Anglo-Iranian Oil Company to British Petroleum. So once Iran seizes all of these BP assets, Britain is having an oil shortage. And so they appeal to Eisenhower for help. And Eisenhower approves the first CIA operation to overthrow a country's leader. It's called Operation Ajax. And the CIA operative on the ground is Kermit Roosevelt Jr., the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt. He's an expert in foreign languages. He goes to Tehran and he organizes mobsters and gangsters and radical imams, and they stage protests and riots and attack mosques, and they co-opt the media with bribes and threats to blame Mazdek for all the problems, and they nurture weak links in the military. And when the country gets panicky enough, they do a coup, and they put Mazdek under house arrest, lock him away for the rest of his life where he dies, and they replaced him with the Shah, who loved America because we put him in, and he did have a claim to the throne. And, and the CIA did the same thing in uh, Guatemala, 1954, and the same thing in the Congo, Dominican Republic, Brazil, Chile. And the KGB did the same thing. 
with Brezhnev and Khrushchev helping Yasser Arafat to start the PLO for one purpose, sow division in the Middle East, and helped Castro to sow division and take over Cuba. And Brezhnev and Khrushchev helped Che Guevara to start FARC in Colombia and ELN in Bolivia for the purpose of identifying groups, pitting them against each other, creating crisis, and taking advantage of that to seize power. Uh, there were hundreds of these coups and coup attempts in Africa. And this period of time is called the Cold War. And these tactics of going into a country, observing all the groups, and then pitting the groups against each other till it breaks out in violence, everybody gets in fear, they want someone to come along and quickly restore order, and power gets usurped, uh, and the freedoms are taken away. And so back to the title of this series that uh, globalism rising authoritarianism and the demise of the civil liberties that there has to be a crisis before people will want to give up their civil liberties if you just ask them hey uh, uh, please give me all all your civil liberties they wouldn't do that so you have to have some motivation to have them give them up now the cold war uh there was a debate amongst candidates of a certain party and the topic of socialism came up and Chris Matthews on MSNBC uh, said, I remember the Cold War. I've seen what socialism is like and I don't like it, okay? It's not only not free, it doesn't work. I believe if Castro and the Reds had won, there would have been executions in Central Park. So this was the last time that Chris Matthews was on TV. Evidently, something he said uh, went the wrong way. Uh, and But what's he talking about executions in Central Park? Well, Castro had an executioner named Che Guevara. And Che Guevara wrote, we executed many people by firing squad without knowing if they were fully guilty. I'd like to confess, I discovered I really like killing. Blind hate against the enemy creates a forceful impulse that cracks the boundaries of natural human limitations, transforming the soldier into an effective, selective, cold killing machine. A people without hate cannot triumph. So you want to get one group to hate the other group. So you go in the thesis, antithesis, synthesis, you want to create a problem, you want to create an enemy, and then you want to stir up this emotion of hate. And then in the confusion, you seize power. Coming a little closer to home, we have Saul Alinsky. He rode around with Al Capone's hitman, Frank Nitti in Chicago. And he observed that all they had to do was kill a few people, smash a few windows, and the whole neighborhood would panic in fear and submit to the mob and be willing to pay him protection money just to be left alive. And so Saul Linsky says, let's apply this to politics. And Hillary Clinton did her senior thesis on Wellesley College. And uh, we see that Saul Alinsky writes, the first step in community organization is community disorganization. Disruption of the present organization is the first step. The organizer's first job is to create the issues or the problems. The organizer must first rub raw the resentments of the people of the community. An organizer must stir up dissatisfaction and discontent, fan the latent hostilities of many of the people to the point of overt expression. The organizer polarizes the issue, helps lead his forces into conflict. He must search out controversy, for unless there is controversy, the people are not concerned enough to act. This is the politics 
that we have been experiencing for the last generation, the intentional wanting to get rid of patriotism, get people to identify with subgroups and pit the subgroups against each other and even teach this, this in the schools. Instead of being united and patriotic in the schools, you want to teach division. You want to get people to identify with subgroups for the purpose of pitting them against each other as victims and oppressors until it breaks out in rioting and social disruption so that everybody gets into fear and then the government can seize more of your freedoms. This is done on a national level, but also on a global level. You need to have global crises that are so terrible that people globally will give up their freedoms. Now, Solinsky has an acknowledgement in the front of his book, Rules for Radicals, to Lucifer. We started off talking about Lucifer sowing division and discord. Well, here is, it says, lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively, he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer. So how do you destroy a marriage? You sow discord. How do you des destroy a family? Sow discord. How do you destroy a church? Sow discord. How do you destroy a business? Right? Sow discord. How do you destroy a country? Sow discord. How do you take over globally? You need discord. You need a crisis. You need big global crises. So we look at the different crises. We had Occupy Wall Street and Charlotte riots and Milwaukee riots and Baltimore riots and Mizzou protests and Ferguson riots and San Bernardino killings. And it's almost like some of these things have an air of having been planned with pallets of bricks being dropped off right where they're about to have a peaceful protest. I spoke in Emporia, Kansas, a former state rep had the city uh, uh, meeting auditorium and we had a meeting and uh, they told me, yeah, they were going to have a peaceful protest in their town and somebody had dropped off a pallet of bricks right where they were going to start their protest and there was no construction in the area. And the local people put enough pressure on them to stop the peaceful protest. But there were reports of pallets of bricks being dropped off in Dallas and in cities all across the, the country. I mean, where's the NSA? Aren't they supposed to be monitoring everything to find out where all this, these people that are wanting to do terror are? And some areas, the people won't riot. And so there is a importing of people from other countries that have a propensity to rioting. Let's look at the COVID response. The first thing was to let criminals out of jail. I mean, really, you, you couldn't think of anything else to do with them? Well, you let criminals out, guess what? Crime goes up. And then there's fear in the city. And some people feel unsafe in the city and they move out. Who? Maybe those with families. Okay, pro-family people, they usually belong to one particular political party. Uh, who's left in the city? Well, more people dependent on entitlements. Well, they tend to belong to a different political party. And then COVID response was close businesses down and stand by while they're looted and vandalized. And the, the police are ordered to stand down and the police are defunded. So now pro-business people move out of the big cities. Well, they tend to belong to that first political party. And then churches are shut down where pro-life people gather and organize. And um, then uh, schools are closed and students that have been indoctrinated with hate America are free to riot. Who would want to get students to riot? Well, Albert, Albert Herlong, 1963, reading these communist goals and tactics into the congressional record, said one of them is get control of the schools. Use them as transmission belts for socialism and communist propaganda. 
get control of teachers associations, put the party line in textbooks, use student riots to foment public protests. Even as far back as 1963, they were talking about this. So the net COVID response was more people of one political party move out of the big cities, leaving the other party with monopoly control of city politics. And in election years, whoever wins the big city wins the state. Whoever wins the state gets all the electoral votes for the state, and the president is elected by electoral votes. So it's a domino effect. You have violence go up, you shut down businesses and churches, people of that particular party, for the most part, move out and leaving the other one with monopoly control. If someone wanted to do voter fraud, there would be fewer people of the other party to observe. Matter of fact, they only needed six cities to win the last election. Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Phoenix, Atlanta, Las Vegas, Detroit. They win those six cities. They win that state and they get all the electoral votes for the state. So uh, you see a net benefit to one particular political party in the COVID response. So we talked about fear as one of the tools to get people to give up their freedoms. So it's concentrated back into the government and ultimately back into the hands of a dictator. Uh, let's talk for a moment on the second method, free stuff. How do you get people to give up their rights and freedoms or civil liberties through free stuff? It's called the Great Reset. And Karl Marx, Frederick Engels wrote the Communist Manifesto. And then they wrote this, that they are alchemists of the revolution. Their business consists in spurring it into artificial crises. And every new crisis must be more serious and more universal than the last. Every fresh slump must ruin more small capitalists. This will increase the number of the unemployed. And in the end, commercial crisis will lead to a social revolution. I mean, who would want to put out of business the small capitalists? Well, socialism is a two-tiered society of a ruling class, a deep state, and the ruled class, all the everybody else. You, there's no room for a middle class because they can pool their money and challenge the ruling class. And so Lenin is credited with a statement, grind the middle class, the bourgeoisie, out of existence between the two millstones of taxation and inflation. Taxation is you just take away their money, and then you funnel it to pay your supporters, right? Like Abimelech did. You take the city treasury money and you use it to buy rioters. Uh, one is so taxation, but the other is inflation. And if you inflate the currency, everybody's savings disappears. And then you have people that can't survive and they throw themselves at the feet of the government and say, help. Sort of like in Egypt, when there was a famine and the people didn't have food and the government says, we'll give you food, but it's an exchange for your cattle, your land, your children, your lives, right? So 1934, Chicago Tribune has an editorial cartoon of a guy looking like Trotsky riding on a board, plan of action for US, spend, spend, spend under the guise of recovery, bust the government, blame the capitalists for the failure, junk the constitution and declare a dictatorship. On the side, it says it worked in Russia. Spend, 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 what's that? That's having infrastructure and uh, stimulus bills for creating trillions and trillions of dollars. And they're not intended to stimulate and they're not intended to build the infrastructure. They're intended to create trillions of dollars chasing the same amount of goods, causing those goods to inflate in price. 
So much so that the people on fixed income can't survive. And they go to the government and they say, help. And the government says, we'll give you help. Here's a check. And then they incrementally say, for you to continue to get these checks, you have to get the latest booster. You have to file online so we can get the metrics of your face. Uh, and we, we matched your name and address up with the gun registry records. We found out you have guns. You have to give those up if you want to continue to get the check. And, and one by one, they're going to have requirements. And this is where the gl big global reset sets in. Now, we saw a little of this during the Great Depression in America. And FDR comes along and he says, I have got big government solutions, but it's going to take away a lot of your freedoms. He has 3,000 executive orders and mandates. One of them is he outlawed the private ownership of gold. People were burying gold coins in coffee cans in their backyards to get away from the president's mandate. Well, FDR had someone that continued his legacy named LBJ. And the New Deal programs are now called the Great Society Welfare State. And it's getting as many people on welfare as possible and then you control their lives. And this comes from two socialist professors at Columbia University, Richard Cloward, Francis Piven. And they said, well, you can institute communism with tanks and guns, or you can get everybody to be dependent on the government. But you first have to inflate the currency. You first have to create a financial situation where people cannot survive. So they willingly come and sign up for handouts from the government. And then you got their vote forever. It's effective. And um, anyway, so now we look at uh, a global picture. Now, we see in Russia that um, uh, Putin's invading Ukraine. And uh, we see that uh, Putin has his own reasons for invading and terrible things are happening. Violence and killings, it's horrible. He needs to be stopped. This needs to be stopped right away. But if you were to see it from a bigger picture, uh, this is but this scenario has been created by Biden. So the U.S. was oil independent and we were finishing the Keystone Pipeline and America was exporting oil and Biden immediately cancels the Keystone Pipeline and puts on lots of anti-business regulations on that industry and then begins to buy oil from Russia to the tune of billions of dollars a day from Russia. And then we see that um, uh, Putin goes into Ukraine. And now we have the whole world uniting against Putin. And him being isolated financially with sanctions. And if the scenario is that Oil is the number one commodity sold worldwide. It has always been sold in US dollars. And Russia is the third largest supplier of oil in the world. And if Russia is cut off from the financial Western uh, avenues of trading in dollars, he may be pushed into a corner to have to sell his oil in a ruble yuan transaction to China without using the US dollar. And other countries, even Saudi Arabia, indicated that they might begin to sell their oil in something other than the U.S. dollar. If this happens, the U.S. dollar will lose its status as the world reserve currency. And there will be trillions of dollars that have already been created that will no, nobody will want 
and they'll come back and inflation will go through the roof and the dollars will lose its value. So much so that people will not be able to survive. If it takes $1,000 to fill up your, your gas tank, who's got $1,000 of bills handy? And so there is the uh, possibility of the government coming to the rescue with a digital dollar, with a Fed coin. Uh, President Biden did sign legislation recently that would allow for a digital dollar. As a matter of fact, over 100 countries have implemented and developed a digital uh, ability to do transactions. And what would happen if there's lots of zeros added on with inflation, but if you can still use your phone and tap it, if you can still uh, continue your transaction, it doesn't matter how many zeros are after it, as long as you can keep doing your business, and it'll look like the government has come to the rescue. But then when you realize that now it's like a, a Bitcoin style transaction, but it is run through the government, they can track everybody. They not only can track everybody, they can turn someone off if they don't like them. Like a little lady in Canada that donated $50 to their freedom caravan and her bank account, bank account got turned off. And then they can add to this electronic currency where it can't be spent to, in certain businesses and in certain charities and certain places. It can only be, it's programmed currency that can only be spent in certain other areas. There will be control. And then added to the credit score is ESG. It's a environmental and a social wokeness and a governance. It's, it's the a, a government saying, we're not only gonna look at your credit worthiness of paying your bills, we're gonna look at how woke you are. China has already implemented this and they'll begin to integrate all of your purchases, all of your website searches, all the, your geo positioning on your phone and they can see who you're in the vicinity of. And if you're around somebody with low credit scores, your credit score goes down. And, and this is again, what China is using so that people aren't even able to buy uh, train tickets to get to work or get promotions or get loans for things unless they have a high credit score and a high social credit score or an ESG score. Again, this is all the taking away of civil liberties in a time of panic, in a time of crisis, that people normally would never have given up the control over their life in a normal setting. But now with a international crisis and having someone to blame it on who is a bad person, who's doing bad things, but this is a bigger picture of taking advantage of that crisis for the consolidation of control. And um, one of the interesting things when you look at politics is foreign aid. And it is more and more coming out that whenever the government calls for billions and trillions of dollars to be sent around the world for global warming or for um, helping with different things, more often than not, the money goes to third world countries and goes to corrupt leaders in these third world countries who get to keep a portion of it and then funnel the rest of it back to the corrupt politicians in the United States. And it's sort of interesting when Hillary Clinton was secretary of state, the US government was giving lots and lots of money to Ukraine. And guess what? Ukraine, citizens in the Ukraine, according to the Wall Street Journal report, funneled 
$10 million back to the to Hillary Clinton's foundation. Ukraine was the number, it's the poorest country in Europe, and it's funneling the most money to the Clinton Foundation. Isn't that interesting? That the US taxpayer money is going to Ukraine and then it finds its way back into this particular politician's foundation. Well, this topic is very important. It is not all the answers, but it is a historical observation of the tactic of when people get in fear, they will give up their freedoms. And so there has been a well-developed timeline of the intentional creating or capitalizing on a crisis to use it to consolidate power and also to get people into dependency and then you can control them. And it goes from a local level to a national level to a global level. Uh, in a spiritual view, uh, which I have to encourage myself uh, spiritually, uh, is that it's also in times of crisis that people turn to Christ. So the same crisis that's going to cause power to concentrate, um, it's going to cause a lot of people to turn to Christ in their crisis, in their distress. And then lastly, it's in times of crises that God raises up leaders. What are the favorite stories you like in the Bible? It's when God's people are in a crisis situation and he raises up little nobodies with faith and courage who, who stand up and resist and trust the Lord. You know, 80-year-old Moses against Pharaoh, the most powerful military force in the world, or a teenager David against the most feared Goliath thug, or Gideon against 100,000 Midianites, and he gets 30,000 Israelites, and God says, tell everyone that's scared to go home. He gets down to 10,000. God says, still too many. Go drink from a creek and wills it to 300. And then God rolls up his sleeves and says, watch this. In other words, the God that we serve wants to make the odds look even worse. So I'm convinced, I'm not a theologian, but I'm convinced that possibly the same crisis that's going to cause some people to panic and fear and surrender their lives to the Antichrist and take the mark of the beast, that same crisis is going to cause other people to rise up in faith and courage, like the early church. And they're going to pray for more boldness in the time of crises and say, God, use me in this crisis to love the unlovable, to defend the defenseless, to reach out to those in need. And this is our turn. This is your turn and my turn. And the good Lord decided for us to be alive right now. And he knows all the backroom deals that everybody, all the corrupt people are doing. And he said that you've got enough to handle it. He's chosen for you to be alive right now. This is your turn to be the Gideon and the David and the Moses and the Deborah. Well, thank you for taking time to view this. God bless you.